always get what you want But if you try sometimes You might find Good morning, and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 or whatever the equivalent time is in your part of the world, since we're global. And you can catch dozens of our back shows in our archives at visionaries.podbean.com. And I thought I might just uh, flip through a few of our back shows. So if you go to visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, you'll find um, you can listen to or download the back shows. And the most recent posted there is on Visionary Creativity and Business, which is part two is what I'm going to talk about today. So I'm going to continue that discussion. I uh, Then before that, we had a guest, Jeremy Lent, and he's the author of The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity. And Jeremy is uh, a throwback to a wonderful time. I remember in the 70s and 80s, a time of Marilyn Ferguson's The Aquarian Conspiracy, uh, Rupert Sheldrick, figures like that. And uh, they had insights into Ilya Prigogine, I think it is. And they were looking at uh, both science and human culture in terms of its interconnectedness and trying to... to, um, um, Oh, find an alternative to science's reductionist approach to uh, to uh, science, and to see how things work as holes and are interconnected. So that was a really great show, and you can find um, his website is leology l i o l o g y dot org. And he has a lot of material uh, looking at this. So something you might want to check out and something I'm enjoying keeping up on his website. Um, the uh, Okay, I'm looking here in 71717. Is the universe conscious? So we had a guest, Gregory Matloff, and <clears throat> Gregory's a hardcore, uh, formerly tenured, now uh, uh, emeritus professor of cosmology, uh, astrophysics, and all that stuff. And there's a little problem with, uh, you know, a lot of science does not wrap up and sew up as neatly as it claims it does. And so what there's, you know, we have this stuff called dark matter and dark energy, which means we have no idea what's going on. So if you look at a galaxy, you know, you look at those beautiful photos, particularly now that we have uh, Hubble and our next generation telescopes are going to be 100 times even better resolution. And 
you look at a galaxy, and there it is spinning away, and the spinning is tending to throw all of uh, all of its stars and its matter outward, and at the same time, all that stars and matter is exerting a gravitational pull to hold it together, so it balances. Only problem is that it's only 10% as much matter as is needed to keep it from flying apart. And they didn't tell us that. You know, when I was in school, they always knew it, but they just sort of tried to cover it up. And finally, they said, we better look at this. And then they got this brilliant idea. We'll say, well, uh, what's holding it together is dark matter, which means we have no idea. And Dark matter has hypothecated to be uh, some type of matter, whatever, that exerts a gravitational force but otherwise does not interact like light goes right through it. doesn't interact with light, doesn't interact with any other form of radiation, which is why we can't see it. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that um, Newtonian or Einsteinian formulas for gravity just aren't right. It doesn't uh, reduce as a square as it goes outward, but it changes uh, its strength as it goes outward. It's not an even um, leveling off. Well, Jeremy Lent proposes a third alternative, which is the galaxy decides what it wants to do. (laughs) And he has a lot of examples. I mean, he writes heavily scientific books about this, uh, uh, presenting this hypothesis. Um, In uh, an earlier show, I looked at exponential growth. You know, we have these um, um, current futurists out there. I remember way back in the 70s when I would go to meetings of the World Future Society, and these were futurists, people who talked about the future. And even in the 60s, it was interesting. I was friends. uh, I guess I bumped into them in these World Future Society contexts. But I hung out with a couple interesting people. One of them, if anybody's run into Brian Quickstad, let me know, because he falls off the Internet. There's a reference to him in the 70s and then nothing after that. Anyway, Brian was... uh, uh, graduated Yale Law School, and he was vice president for future stuff for Shell Oil. Imagine that, this major oil company having a VP for future stuff. So Brian and I uh, did some projects together, and there's another uh, friend I had. I don't remember his name right now, but he was vice president for future stuff for at and So in those days, these major corporations had, uh, they figured we better check out the future. And the argument was, you know, all the division heads are looking out five years. Uh, You know, they're saying, well, what's going to happen in five years? And if it's going to take three or four years to gear up for it, we got to get started now. Uh, But what about 10 years, 20 years? Well, nobody was looking at that in these major corporations. And so they added these uh, VPs for future stuff. Uh, and I don't remember exactly. It wasn't stuff, but like that. And they don't have them anymore. 
uh, because everybody's now looking out. You know, everybody's a futurist. But anyway, our major futurist today is someone named Ray Kurzweil. There are, of course, a lot of them. But Ray Kurzweil did something interesting. And he started 30 years ago saying, we, we can't know what the future is going to be. Um, look at all the stuff that has happened. That nobody, you know, like the Internet, that nobody five years before it happened was talking about. Nobody predicted it. So we can't predict this stuff. And then he started to looking into it more deeply. And he said, you know, there's something we can predict. Now, there's something you might have heard of called Moore's Law. Gordon Moore, co-founder of Intel, uh, <clears throat> which makes the chips we all use in all of our computers. And, you know, they pioneered the whole thing. And there are their competitors these days, but they're still major. And Gordon Moore's still alive. He's retired. But in the 1960s, he observed that, hey, the chips we're making here at Intel, we tend to, every two years, um, the amount of transistors we can get on a chip doubles at the same cost. And so it's really an observation and not a law, but we call it Moore's Law. And Ray Kurzweil says, you know what? This goes back to even before we had chips or even transistors. This has been true for 120 years. If we start with relays, the big switching things that uh, phone companies used, and then it goes to vacuum tubes, and then it goes to transistors, and then it goes to chips. Uh, this has been going on for 100 years. That, you know, it varies between 18 months and two years, but let's just say two years. Every two years, the, uh, and now let's uh, not say the number of transistors we get on chip, but just say the general computational power at the same cost has been doubling every two years for 120 years. And so 30 years ago, he, he said, you know what? I'm going to just assume that continues uh, indefinitely. You know, it's not going to go on forever, uh, or maybe it will. Talk about that in a moment. But I'm going to assume it's going to go on for a while. And he said that in the early 80s. He wrote a book, uh, The Age of Intelligent Machines. And 10 years later, he said, you know what? I was right on. And he wrote a book called The Age of Spiritual Machines. And 10 years later, he said, you know what? I was right on. And he wrote a book called um, The Singularity is Near. And he said, I'm not seeing any stopping of this. We're going we're gonna to run into molecular limitation of how small we can make these uh, transistors on a chip. But then we can go to three-dimensional chips. So chips are laid out in two dimensions. They're actually created photographically. That it used to be that you would use yeah, big pieces of mylar, uh, transparent sheets of plastic. We, in our, I'm an architect, and we would use that in architecture as well. And then with ink, you would draft on this, or you would use uh, thin strips of black tape to lay it down on the mylar. And then in architecture, we run it through a blueprint machine, and we make a set of blueprints that the uh, would go to the client and the engineer and the contractor building the building. Well, 
in computers, what they would do is they would take this big sheet of mylar, might be six feet square, and it would have all the circuitry drawn on it uh, with this uh, uh, strips of black tape. And then it would photographically blow it down. Remember, I don't know if you ever did it, but, you know, if you get in the Xerox room, uh, you take a sheet of paper with type on it, and you Xerox it at 50%. And then you take the output, and you Xerox that at 50%. And then you take the output, and you, and you wonder, how far can you go and still read it, you know? <laughs> at a certain point, it just blurs. But it would go pretty small. Well, that's how they make chips. They take these big sheets of mylar and photographically blow them down to, you know, like a half-inch square. And this would be your circuitry. Well, that eventually, oh, and then they would uh, they would use it. They would have a, a, a layer of silicon, and then they would put a wax on it, and then they would uh, photographically put this little half-inch blown-down thing over it and send light to it, which would erode the wax, and they would give it an acid bath, and that would eat away a layer of the silicon, except where the black lines were, where the light did not take the wax away, and the wax protected the silicon from the acid. And they'd make multiple layers of circuitry this way and <clears throat> uh, layer all these together and make a two-dimensional chip. Well, I always wanted to make three-dimensional chips, but they couldn't do it because the heat couldn't escape. The, you might have noticed, if you're a little bit older, that up until about 10 years ago, the megahertz of our computers would go up and up, and one megahertz, two megahertz, three megahertz, four megahertz, and then all of a sudden it stopped and went back to two megahertz because the four megahertz chips were generating so much heat they'd melt. <laughs> So instead, they went to cores. They basically put two chips on a chip. So almost all our chips today are two-core. Some are four-core. And if you get a really high-end uh, computer, it has uh, 12 or 18 cores. And these are parallel computers on one chip. But they, they, um, they you know, max out at maybe 3 megahertz. They seldom go to 4 anymore because it generates too much heat. Well, that's why they couldn't make three-dimensional chips. There's no place for the heat to go. And uh, you might look at this big metal heat sink on your CPU, and if you have a big, if you still have a big desktop computer. But they uh, uh, are beginning to solve that problem. And when they do, they can make multiple layers and make a 3D chip. Um, you know, so it'll be a half inch each dimension and a half inch thick or a quarter inch. And uh, but anyway, uh, uh, so Ray Kurzweil figured out that um, this was true not only of chips, but also electronics in general and information in general. You notice that your hard drive uh, doubles in capacity every couple of years and uh he then figured out that medicine was becoming a information discipline and that key to it was sequencing the human genome. You might recall they announced the, uh, the first draft 
Bill Clinton announced it in the year 2000. And they had pretty much, they really had a lot of cleaning up to do, but let's say they had done it and it cost, took 20 years and cost $3 billion. And then uh, some years later, they did, well, uh, Craig Venter did it in two years for $300 million. And then some years later, they did a Watson of Watson and Crick's. They did his uh, DNA, and it cost a million dollars. And now 23andMe does it for $99. <laughs> they don't do the whole sequence, but they do a lot of it. And so, you know, I mean, what, at what point will you be able to buy a $10, like a pregnancy test, right? Buy a $10 kit at CVS and, uh, pardon me, spit on it. And uh, 10 minutes later, you, you plug it into your USB drive and you're reading out your entire uh, genome. Well, it's coming. And if you actually plot it, you can figure out when it will be here. So that's exponential growth. And uh, there are a group of people that are looking at its impact on our technology and therefore culture and Ray Kurzweil wrote a book called The Singularity is Near. And by singularity, they mean when artificial intelligence will equal or exceed human intelligence. And I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But um, the and at that point, uh, who knows? They, AI takes over. We plant uh, one of those chips in our brain. Uh, something like that. But that's what Ray Kurzweil deal, deals with in the book, The Singularity is Near. But then he and someone named Peter Diamantis, who's founder of the X Prize, uh, founded something called Singularity University. And they, uh, they do well for themselves. It's one of these very exclusive things where you know, um, CEOs or high-up executives pay five or $20,000 to spend a month being exposed to the um, most important bright minds on the planet. And, uh, and they talk a lot about exponential growth. So your student project at Singularity University will be come up with something that will better the lives of a billion people within 10 years. Anything less, don't bother. You say, well, I got this thing that will, uh, you know, double the efficiency of batteries. Forget it. No one's going to buy it. Uh, Ten times the efficiency. There we go. Uh, so uh, uh, that's, you know, what they're looking for. And not of a few rich people, but everybody. And they look at things, you know, like the, the um, mobile phone. And you say, well, you know, the first mobile phone was $4,000, and it was the size of a brick. <laughs> you still see that in some old movies. But, and everybody was critical of it, you know. Well, now it's free with your two-year, you know, with your two-year uh, uh, plan. And I was the other day, I was in Staples, and I, uh, I'm not very uh, technically capable so I always get Mac stuff. I mean, I totally freaked out about Windows. I mean, you know, before that, it was DOS. I remember taking a course in DOS. I said, you're kidding. Uh, and so Mac came along with um, 
the Mac OS. I said, this I can handle. So, and then, you know, finally Windows 3 was uh, their attempt to imitate Mac, and it sort of worked. And, of course, today Windows is as good as Mac. Some people think. I still can't handle Windows. But for that reason, I got a, you know, I got an iPhone. Figure I'll stay in that world because I can handle this. And um, um, lo and behold, um, it was affordable. So here's this, you know, basically now walking around with our smartphones with uh, Cray One supercomputers in our pockets that used to cost $3 million and was used to make nuclear weapons. And we have them for, you know, in our in our pockets. Well, so I go into Staples, and they had this board with about 20 phones on it wired to the board, except for a couple that have been stolen. And uh, I'm looking at them, and it's like $10, $20, $40. And I'm saying, is this cases? Are they selling cases for these phones? Oh, my God. They're selling phones that look just like my iPhone for 20 bucks. Well, I mean, this is not with a, you know, with your <clears throat> plan, 20 bucks unlocked and then buy, buy some minutes. I know, why am I spending whatever it is, $600? Hey, what, the, the new iPhone's coming out tomorrow and they say it's going to be $1,000. Uh, why am I spending $1,000 when they, they, they're, they're selling knockoffs for 20 bucks? Anyway, uh, so what happens is, what these people observe is, when technology is new, it doesn't work, and only the rich can afford it. And then, uh, you know, a few years later, it works great, and it's free. (laughs) But anyway, um, uh, so that's exponential growth. And the example Diamantes likes to use, he'll be standing on a stage, and he says, if you take 30 analog steps, in other words, you take a three-foot step 30 times, you'll be on the other side of the stage. What if you take 30 um, exponential steps? The first one is three feet. The second one is six. The second one is 12. The next one is 24. And you do that 30 times. You'll be, what, at the back of the auditorium? No, you'll have circled the globe 27 times. Um, so exponential growth is really freaky. Anyway, I did a show about that a while back, and it really impacts uh, what we're doing. I did um, an, an AI guy, Louis Arana, uh, look at Robots Without Borders, uh, or Louis Arana, A-R-A-N-A, on Facebook and you can follow him. He's an artificial intelligence guy. He's an individual person with no resources, uh, living hand-to-mouth, and occasionally there'll be a competition. He'll come in first. Google will come in second in AI. So um, it shows what the individual can do. And uh, speaking of that, well, I'll go more into AI a little later. But then I, d- I did some shows on Marshall McLuhan. And uh, one of them, we had some video clips of McLuhan. You can't see those on uh, uh, on the on the archive, but you can hear him talk. So 
Uh, I did a couple of cool shows on Marshall McLuhan, and I'm sure you've heard of McLuhan, but you don't know the details. So definitely uh, look that up. I did a couple of shows on education. I'm a professor. And why <laughs> Why is education so uh, uh, primitive? Um, the, um, I did a fun show on the 60s. And whatever happened to the 60s? I did a couple of shows with John David Ebert. And you might also look up Ebert on Facebook and YouTube. Um, and he does great lectures on culture, movies, cultural theory, uh, French uh, intellectual thought. Do you want to know what Foucault and Derrida and all that stuff's about? He has great lectures. He has some that he charges for. Google has a service where you have to pay to hear lectures. It's very pay to hear lectures. It's very nominal, but he does have some that are free on uh, <coughs> on uh, YouTube, so you can uh, try them out and see what you think. Uh, one of my favorite figures is Peter Thiel, and he um, uh, his book is Zero to One. And again, uh, all these people, I've been having a ball with um, YouTube. And I'll tell you about someone I just in, uh, discovered uh, watching, watching C-SPAN this weekend, and I just pop over to YouTube and I can look her up and hear an hour lecture or interview. And... So uh, you can catch Peter Thiel on YouTube, and I strongly recommend it. And he, he you, you, you saw him in the movie uh, Social Network. So he's the first venture capitalist who funds Facebook. That made him a couple billion dollars. And he also is one of the founders of, um, of uh, PayPal. And when they sold that, he pocketed uh, quite a lot of money as well. But when he's interviewing a potential uh, venture, uh, new venture looking for money, one of his questions is, what do you believe that almost no one else believes? Everybody, you know, it's so cliched out there. Everybody wants to tell us the same thing. Is there anything he says, he asks, that you believe that uh, isn't a cliche, that everybody else doesn't believe. And that's where it takes some daring. Um, what else? Oh, uh, I, you know, I have a website called cinemadiscourse.com. I do it with John David E., but we haven't posted much in a while. But the um, um, there's some great older stuff on there looking at Myths and movies. So I did a show, How to Experience an Archetypal Movie. So, and then I have a colleague, Yvonne Shumkoff, and he started an online academy, Build Academy. So that's an interesting one. So those are some of my back shows. But let's, um wanted to talk a bit about, oh, one more. Incredible guy. Oh, a couple more. Wow. Okay. Bill Katavalos, one of the great uh, minds of our time. I uh, heard Bill lecture when I was a student. So when I started teaching, when I became a professor at Pratt, I hired Bill. And uh, he's still teaching there. He's 93. Uh, but uh, one of the great fertile minds of our time. 
Um, right now, he's experimenting with uh, architecture made out of water. He did organic architecture. I had a, I did an article in the Village Voice many many years ago on his 270 mile high building uh, that he designed. So it's really cool stuff. And uh, Bill's always a kick. And then uh, one more, uh, Natasha Vita Moore. So you might have heard the term transhumanism, the idea of, well, I mentioned it earlier, what happens when we uh, biologically change? What happens when we alter our DNA? What happens when we implant chips in our brain? So uh, the general term is transhumanism that looks at this. And the poster person for transhumanism, she did a website for a while redesigning herself, is Natasha Vita Moore. And you can find her all over the uh, all over YouTube. So I strongly recommend her and the great interview we did a while back. So anyway, this weekend, um, I'm flipping channels and... I, they did, uh, what did they do? What did they call them? The long interviews they call, I don't remember what they call them, but they'll uh, talk to an author for an hour or so. And I encountered this woman, uh, Deidre McCloskey. And she's talking about a new book of hers called Bourgeois Equality. How Ideas Not Capital or Institutions Enrich the World. And it's the third of three volumes uh, that she's been doing. Uh, bourgeois, uh, let's see. Where's, oh, here we go. I'm sorry. Oh, no, the, the newest one is Bourgeois Virtues, Ethics in an Age of Commerce. And then Bourgeois Dignity, Why Economics Can't Explain the Modern World. So these are three books. And they're about five to seven hundred pages each. Ah! And uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, there's no way I can read a book that long. Fortunately, they're all on audio. So uh, long trips in the car, and I'll get caught up. And so I, uh, I haven't downloaded my first one yet. Because I'm right. Anyway, so I recommend her. So go to, well, the idea is what happened? If we look at human history, and I uh, teach architectural history with a group of really terrific colleagues. One of them is a super expert on Rome, both ancient Rome and the Renaissance. For many years, he ran the Rome, Rome program at my school. And so, um, Anthony Caradona, and you'll find him on my, um, on my YouTube channel. Uh, so, what he, um, he gives a lecture in our course where there's a whole group of us. He gives the lectures on ancient Rome and the Renaissance because he's spent uh, so much time there and having great uh, guest historians talk about uh, ancient Rome and the Renaissance. And you look at ancient Rome. It's a city of a million people, hot and cold running water, sewers, uh, the public baths, beautiful architecture. Um, 
And how'd they do that? And so they reached a certain level of technological advancement. If you go to Europe in 1700, uh, probably their technology was not equal to that of ancient Rome. So if you go back to, uh, uh, but then you go forward, you know, 50 years and 1750, very roughly, takes, starts to take off. And so you draw a line from zero or very low wealth, technology, world population, and it increases, you know, at uh, 2% a year for a couple thousand years and really doesn't get very far. Ancient Rome, ancient China, even in a lot of ways ancient Egypt uh, were, you know, managed to take care of themselves pretty well. And then starting in the late 1700s, it all of a sudden ramps up and it's suddenly going straight up. The technology, the population, the uh, scientific uh, achievement, what happened? And what happened was the European Enlightenment. And uh, so what was it about the European Enlightenment? And actually, I address this in my book, Visionary Creativity, How New Worlds Are Born. But it's also the subject that Deidre McCloskey's talking about. And it what she says and what I said even before I had heard her, because I wrote the book a couple of years ago, and someone I also admire, Matt Ridley. Matt Ridley, uh, the way he puts it is sex between ideas. And what uh, happens that she points out and I point out is that all of a sudden there becomes a radical freedom of the individual to do their thing. And she likes to quote an English term, have a go at it. You know, start your own small business. Uh, Start thinking about what causes gravity. Um, Do some experiments in the basement with uh, electric sparking. You know, one of the great... uh, early scientists who had ideas about electricity, some of which we still use today, is Benjamin Franklin. This the freedom he had to explore these ideas. You know, we were all told as school children about how he uh, <laughs> almost electrocuted himself with this really dumb idea of sending up a kite and uh, holding on to the string <laughs> and... Uh, to uh, show that the lightning was electricity. Well, he could have electrocuted himself. Fortunately, he didn't. But all of a sudden, the opportunity to do things, weird things, totally outside of the social and cultural norms and to benefit from it, to start a business and keep the proceeds, to launch new ideas and be credited for them. To this day, we are still looking at those drawings of Leonardo da Vinci. And as he traveled around from patron to patron, he always brought with him his notebooks. And, uh, you know, here we are, uh, 1,000, 1,500 years, how long is it? Uh, anyway, 500-some years later, and we're still looking at those notebooks, looking at his 
self-driving cars, looking at his autonomous robots, uh, stuff like that. As well, of course, as flying machines and, and all that. So the ability to of each individual uh, and who was included in each individual's was initially limited but slowly grew. And to explore ideas and to, shall we say, own the ideas and be credited for them. Anyway, that's what um, uh, Deidre McCluskey's books are about. Another uh, person is sort of a cluster of people who think this way. Deidre McCluskey, another favorite I'll have uh, on the show shortly is Virginia Postrel. She wrote a book called The Future and Its Enemies, in which she describes uh, two approaches to the future. Uh, that of um, stasists and dynamists. And I don't think those are great terms, but stasists are people who don't like the future, or if they do, uh, yes, we'll allow the future, but only if we can control it, only if we can design and control it. And as silly as that sounds, that really is the attitude in Europe. So I get a, a wonderful science magazine called New Scientist. It's very thin, so you can get through it every week. It comes weekly. And um, uh, you can just see from the—it's British. And you can see from the attitude, the, of course, continental Europeans are even more so this way. But even in Britain, their attitude is, what te technological developments should we permit? It's like, what? Uh, now, you know, in a sense, that makes sense uh, because you don't want some kid, you know, <laughs> using CRISPR DNA engineering in the basement to be crossing the common cold with Ebola. <laughs> there's, there's a big bang theory about that in which uh, uh, Bernadette uh, says, oh, don't drink from that glass. No, no, I, 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 it's okay. Uh, I, I thought maybe I didn't wash my hands since uh, we were working in the lab on crossing Ebola with the common cold. And it's, you what? You crossed Ebola? Why? She says, why would anybody do that? Uh, anyway, um, uh, you know, maybe we'd like to uh, uh, not let people do that. <laughs> but... On the other hand, uh, I was—I uh, had built an online system for a corporate client some years ago in the early 90s, and we used bulletin board software, okay, because the Internet didn't exist. And uh, actually it did, but the web didn't exist. And so the Internet was around for quite a while, but the Internet was simply a way of linking and putting up files. But the ability to view them formatted on your computer with pictures and formatted text, that's the web, World Wide Web. So I was going to these conferences where everybody was there. You know, AT&T was there and Sprint was there, all the technology companies. And 
I don't remember these years, but I remember one year uh, I'm there, and the word Internet is never mentioned. And the next year I'm there, and it's all everybody's talking about, which means nobody predicted the Internet, the biggest thing in technology maybe in history, a year before it happened. You know, nobody in the field was even talking about it uh, a year before it exploded. And then when it exploded, it was too late, you know, for anybody who was worried about um, uh, what it was going to do to their industry. It was, you know, they they didn't—there's a term, walking dead. They were dead. They didn't know it. They were still walking. But um, department stores— bookstores, newspapers, um, uh, conventional telephone companies, they were gone, uh, uh, even though they didn't know it yet. It was just a matter of time till they fell over. And nobody had predicted that. Now, should we have not allowed that? Should we have said, oh, let's have all the phone companies get together and all the government regulators get together and decide whether or not we're going to allow the Internet. And there's another interesting example of this. It's up in the air whether we're going to have net neutrality. Well, net neutrality is two different things. On the one hand, it's net neutrality, which means that... um, one, uh, how should we put it, uh, YouTube or Netflix won't be able to pay extra money to get better bandwidth for their videos. And in order to allow that, uh, my website, it'll take forever for it to open up. <laughs> but we'll all be neutral and equal. So that's one net neutrality, and, and, and pretty much everybody's in favor of that. But it, there's another meaning to net neutrality, which is it's a how do we decide what is net neutrality? And the answer is government regulators. And so they don't talk about that part of it, but it's really a um, uh, what's the term uh, to, when you slip something in there that nobody's noticing. But it's a way for the government to take over the Internet and regulate every aspect of it. And do we agree with that? Well, if net neutrality had been in effect when it was launched, the iPhone would never have been launched. It would have taken two to four years for regulators to permit all the stuff that the iPhone did, because what the iPhone did was give you access to the Internet over phone lines as opposed to over landlines on your computer. So uh, is that what we want? Do we want a bunch of uh, major corporations and government regulators to get together and decide if and when we can have the Internet or if and when we can have the iPhone or smartphones. And uh, that's what um, um, uh, stasis want. They want to control new technologies. Uh, And Virginia Postrel's other term is dynamis, and dynamis are for a free and open world in which nobody regulates new ideas except 
If it's a dumb idea, we just don't adopt it. And if it's a great idea, it has a chance to <clears throat> launch and be part of the uh, part of the sea of ideas out there from which we may or may not choose. So anyway, uh, those are three figures. Um, Virginia Postrol, the uh, Future and Its Enemies, uh, Deidre McCluskey, her book on bourgeois society, and Matt Ridley uh, with his discussions of sex between ideas. A look at uh, how new ideas come about. Well, anyway, I was going to talk about something else today, which I'll just mention in a few minutes. But there's something else I've been doing for the past week, so I want to mention that. And, you know, it's interesting how we each get our news, and maybe we'll do a call-in sometime and have uh, listeners tell us, you know, where do you get your news? And it's less and less newspapers in it. I find if I put on the evening news or or if I put on um, uh, CNN or, or any of the other news channels, it's like I already know that. Now, I don't know how I know that. Uh, just from online, from watching for five minutes, you get, you get the, the whole story. I get three newspapers. I get the New York Times, the Daily News, and the New York Post, oh, four, I guess, and the, and the Wall Street Journal. I used to get The Sun. That was a great newspaper, but it uh, doesn't exist anymore. And so I, I, I guess I'm somewhat plugged in, but one of my great news sources is Twitter. And uh, it's interesting how with Twitter, uh, and people talk about this, you know, silos, that you can pick your world. Well, I guess I've picked my world, and I've taken the most interesting people I've encountered. Um, uh, Peter Diamantes, uh, Ray Kurzweil. Actually, sometime I should open up my phone and tell you who I uh, uh, who I follow on Twitter. Um, and it's about 80 people. And what I do is, um, you know, the people who are sort of into cutting-edge business, people I've mentioned already, Peter Thiel and uh, Virginia Postrol, somebody in education, I'm not thinking of his name right now, but he's always the first one on there when I come on in the morning. So I guess he posts early every morning. And... So somebody had a post about Max Tegmark's new book, um, Life 3.0. So I had run into Max Tegmark, sort of heard the name. He's one of these cosmologists, uh, not as famous or important as, but in the field that Stephen Hawking is in. So <clears throat> I just dug up his Wikipedia article, Max Tegmark is a Swedish-American cosmologist, professor at MIT, scientific director of Foundational Questions Institute, co-founder of the Future of Life Institute, and um, has accepted donations from Elon Musk to investigate existential risk from advanced artificial intelligence. Is, is AI going to replace us? 
So you can look them up on um, Wikipedia. But I bump into him, and a mention of him. So I um, said, oh, you know, I should get his book. And fortunately, hang on, let me find this. His book is on, just looking for, there we go. Uh, his book is on audio. So I'm about halfway through it. And Life 3.0, Being Human in an Age of Artificial Intelligence. And so let me see what Amazon says. How artificial intelligence affects, will affect um, crime, justice, jobs, society, and our very sense of being human. The rays of AI has the potential to transform our future more than any other technology, and there's nobody better qualified uh, to, et cetera, address it than Max Tegmark. So that's the book. Strongly recommend it. It's interesting, though, that these people, the people addressing this kind of thing are tend to be science nerds, uh, and by which I mean they're, um, well, they're materialists. I got I to gotta, I gotta label it honestly. And by materialists, I mean they, they look at uh, humans and culture in an interesting way um, in terms of humans maximizing utility. And I say, yeah, you know, we, we have some leftover bad impulses due to evolution um, that are no longer relevant. Hopefully we'll be able to overcome them. But, and then society, they look up as, you know, how people get together to make a better world. And then there's some bad impulses and hopefully we'll uh, get to utopia before bad impulses uh, wipe us out. <laughs> but, they really have no sense of culture. Uh, in looking at technological development, they don't look also at art. Um, in looking at culture, they have no sense of cultural history, uh, something I'll talk about in a future show. But um, Western culture is over. Uh, we're in its uh, stagnation phase. And whether or not anybody picks up the Enlightenment ideas that were developed by the culture, um, we'll see. But uh, cultures have a natural life cycle. They last about a thousand years. And ours began around a thousand AD, so <laughs> our thousand years are up. And then they enter into a stagnation phase where there's science and technology develops, but there are no new ideas, no creativity, no new art forms. It's very clear we're in that phase now. And also the uh, belief in itself, the will to um, extend itself sort of dissolves away. And we also very much see that in, um, in the, you know, you look at our government right now and Every branch of it. Uh, look at our institutions. Look at our universities. Where are the new ideas? You know, we're talking about infrastructure. Well, the amount of money that uh, was spent in the last administration in the stimulus was enough to build 
two interstate highway systems corrected for inflation. Well, where are they? Where'd the money go? What are they doing? Where, 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 where's the bullet trains? Where's the Hyperloop? Where's the supersonic jets? Where's the uh, uh, whatever? Uh, the only new thing we've gotten is Uber, and that only happened because the, they had this cowboy CEO who was willing to flout the law. Uber was totally illegal. They're running a, cat, a taxi system without, without medallions, and they just went ahead and did it and dared uh, anybody to stop them. But you can't do anything new. We don't allow it. Um, um, Peter Thiel talks about this. You know, he describes how it took 12 years to build the new World Trade Center. In the 1930s, it took 18 months to build the Empire State Building. Uh, In the 1930s, it took three years to build the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Uh, Today, they're building a new on-ramp that's costing more than the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's it's now going on four years. Uh, If they had to build a new Golden Gate Bridge, you know, forget it. So um, we're in this world where we don't allow anything new. But anyway, long digression from Life Point 3.0. Um, strongly recommend it. I'm suggesting that the people into this artificial intelligence stuff ought to uh, also understand more about culture. <clears throat> so we'll talk more about that in um, um in a future show. And, Jesus, I'm not even getting to what I wanted to talk about. So, what I wanted to talk about is, let me just uh, read a little quote of what I wanted to talk about, and then one more digression, and then we'll wrap up. But, I did a book called Visionary Creativity, and um, I'm working on a sequel now on how um, how creativity affects new industries, new emerging industries. And um, so I begin the book with two quotes, and that is looking at, you know, what's going to affect the industries of the future? And I think there's two things we might want to look out for. So um, I begin with two statements. One is, <clears throat> if you wanted to make an oak tree, you would not put a pole in the ground, nail sticks to it, and glue leaves to the sticks. You would, of course, what? Put an acorn in the ground and let the oak tree make itself. Why aren't we making our cell phones that way? Why do we have all these people in, you know, hairnets and jumpsuits with small tweezers, thousands of them assembling phones? Let the silly things make themselves. Uh, If an oak tree can make itself, if a human being can make itself, why can't a cell phone make itself? So that's one thing. The other statement is, The world and we have become clusters of interconnected fractal networks 
computationally generating themselves and each other. So that's how, that's what our emerging world looks like. That's what this show today was supposed to be about. But uh, we didn't get there because of my endless digressions. That's my style, freeform radio. So thank you all for listening. This is John LaBelle. You've been listening to Visionary Creativity. Catch us every Monday at prn.fm on the Progressive Radio Network.